0: 148 BC, two years before he will oversee the destruction of the city of Carthage, the Roman general Scipio Aemilianus dreams of flying high above the earth and gazing down upon the city he will one day conquer. But faced with the sight of that tiny city from space, one speck among many of the surface of our planet, which itself is nothing compared to the majesty of the stars of the Milky Way, Scipio cannot help but realize the ultimate futility and vanity of one man's quest for personal glory and fame. This dream is told to us by the philosopher and statesman Cicero. But millennia later, the cognitive shift he depicts in fiction took place for real, when astronaut William Anders took a photograph of the Earth rising above the lunar landscape showing the blue marble of our planet hanging in the endless darkness of space, vulnerable and precious beyond all measure. This photograph, called Earthrise, has been an inspiration to countless millions ever since. I'm Rosario Lebrija Razbetayev, your host for Founding Conversation a podcast sharing ideas and insights for understanding and improving the modern world. This episode considers the future of space and our understanding of the cosmos. As NASA prepares to return to the moon, entrepreneurs like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos inspire a new generation with breathtaking space technologies and promises to make us a multi-planet species. And advances in astrophysics help us gain a richer understanding of the origins of the future of our universe space is once again a subject of vital importance. But what form will the future of space exploration take? Will space continue to inspire wonder and awe in humanity for generations to come? Or will the conquest of the cosmos transport our worst tendencies to the stars? Joining us for a journey into space are Ariel Egblau, founder and director of the MIT Space Exploration Initiative and author of Into the Anthropocosmos, Alan Lightman, novelist, essayist, and the first joint professor in literature and astrophysics, also at MIT. And finally, Luciano Diana, equity partner of the Picta Group. Giorgio Gramonesi, head of global marketing solutions for Picta Wealth Management, moderates this episode.
1: Why do you think we should continue to invest time, money and resources into space research? Uh, With all the problems that we're facing inside of Earth, what is the value of uh, looking outside?
2: There are two dimensions in the way that I answer this question. One is pragmatic in that the technology developed for space exploration since the Apollo era has very often been able to come back down and benefit life on Earth in concrete ways. Everything from technology for the International Space Station that was applied to LASIK eye surgery or microwave technology or Kevlar, many different wonderful examples of technology spin-offs. And then the second part of this answer is that there is something uniquely human and profound about the search for new knowledge, understanding our place in the universe, and that space exploration gives us a way as a species to expand our concentric circles of awareness, understand what it means to be human when we get out into space and we look back at Earth. And so I think there's a wonderful dialogue and an interplay between both the pragmatic and the exploration
3: for the sake of exploration.
1: Thank you very much, Ariel. And Luciano, do you mind sharing your take on this same question?
3: Uh, absolutely. And, and for me, too, there's two different uh, uh, levels here of answer. One is that it's our destiny as a species, in my opinion, to, to project outward into space. And uh, to a certain extent, also, it's a responsibility. So for me, the notion of uh, humans as life messengers uh, makes a lot of sense. But then, Also, as an investor, uh, investing in space uh, research is justified precisely because we have so many challenges on Earth. When we try to solve something very complex, uh, typically we accelerate innovation and we increase the chances of coming up with breakthrough technologies. And uh, if we only think, for example, about nuclear um, uh, fission and fusion, I think a lot of knowledge could spill over from trying to develop next generation propulsion systems uh, Uh, that overcome the limitations of chemical rockets or power generation for future outposts or or mining operations on on the moon and uh, uh, asteroids.
2: I think Luciano makes a wonderful point, which is we also know more about critical challenges facing humanity, like climate change, because of our ability to send probes to Venus and study greenhouse gas emissions, our ability to study, you know, send probes deeper into the solar system and understand more about planetary science, even the formation of our own planet and our moon are things that we're able to get from space exploration. So absolutely a plus one to his point.
1: Thank you very much. Very interesting perspective indeed. Now, if I take a step back, maybe just deep diving a bit more into into the rationale as of why uh, you became so drawn personally into this topic. Alan, maybe starting from you as an
4: astrophysicist. What drew me to space as an astrophysicist is that there are many fundamental processes that happen in outer space that don't happen on Earth. There are, are densities and temperatures that are achieved in space uh, at the centers of stars uh, that we really can't create in the laboratory. So we can test physics uh, in a way in space that we, that we can't on Earth. There are also very exotic objects in space like black holes, uh, probably the most exotic, that test our theories of gravity. We clearly can't create a black hole in the lab on Earth. So from a, a standpoint of fundamental physics, Space uh, offers a laboratory to us, it's a little bit different than our laboratories on Earth because we can't turn a a, a dial and turn up the magnetic field on a neutron star. We have to just observe, but a combination of, of those observations plus theoretical calculations and some space probes that we can do, we're testing our fundamental physics. Thank you, Alan. And Ariel, like Alan, you spent all your
1: life so far dedicated to studying space. How have your perception of space and the technologies to reach space uh, changed since we landed on the moon in uh, 1969?
2: Well, so like Alan, I was originally brought to space with a love of physics. Um, so instead of astrophysics, I started with particle physics. But I think that there is a this lovely connection between the smallest scales and the grand scales of the universe. I think it is something really that calls a lot of us into this realm of space exploration and this curiosity um, that we should be fostering even more people about the nature of our universe, the nature of space exploration. The ways in which I've really seen, even just within the last, I would say, 10 years, but maybe even the last five years, how the technology has really changed, and this is reflected in the work that we've been able to do at MIT with our graduate students is that accessibility to space exploration is increasing really rapidly. So what in the Apollo era and even in the shuttle era was primarily the domain of military, defense, or civilian government like NASA, at least in the United States, is now becoming much more the purview of day-to-day citizens uh, who have multiple different opportunities now and pathways to fly to space a really large and burgeoning commercial infrastructure that we've been able to leverage at MIT to instead of, for example, waiting uh, five years to get in a grant queue to send one experiment to the International Space Station, I can now charter an experiment to go to orbit Every six months I can put students on this experiment and we're expecting even to be able to fly graduate students to orbit within a couple of years. And that's an incredible quick shift in the space industry that I think is really gonna democratize access to space.
1: Luciano, going back on, uh, on on you personally, what draws you into space, would you mind elaborate a bit further on that?
3: Yes, so uh, I, I think I belong to the space shuttle generation. So my, my memorable moments of watching space on TV where where the spacewalks in the mid 80s and uh, they, they really were blowing me away. And, and also as a teenager, I was reading a lot of uh, Asimov and I was fascinated by how uh, people would communicate uh, um, instantaneously across this big galactic empire. And I think maybe subconsciously that led me to study telecommunications engineering uh, at university. So I'm no astrophysicist and my credentials here are infinitely lower than my co-panelists, but uh, I still was drawn to to study telecommunications a little bit because of that. Today, as a portfolio manager, I focus on the environment, environmental investing. So I look at investment opportunities through the lens of the planetary boundaries, and these boundaries really concern all dimensions of uh, the ecosystem, and that includes the atmosphere. So one of the boundaries, for example, is linked to the ozone layer. So it's part of my job, in a way, to understand the environmental implications of the space industry, especially now that it's about to increase its footprint really significantly in terms of rocket launches and material that is just launched into space. Uh, And so on one side, I focus on opportunities for space to Earth applications, and I also focus on the potential risks. So I would say that I look now at space with with a lot of excitement, but also with a certain degree of apprehension, if I have to be honest, because I can see also that uh, there there could be some risks if this uh, space race goes in in a direction that is not uh, regulated, for example, enough.
0: In August 1977, astronomer Jerry Ehman was poring over computer readouts from the Big Ear Telescope in Ohio when he made a discovery – a strong narrowband radio signal lasting 72 seconds. Upon reviewing the data, Ehman circled a string of random numbers and letters. Next to it, he scribbled the comment, WOW! Today, many people think the signal is evidence for the existence of extraterrestrial life. For those inclined to believe such things, it's not the only piece of evidence we have. When researchers were trying to explain the sporadic dips in brightness of Tabby's star, some suggested it was caused by a Dyson sphere, a gigantic sphere made of solar panels that completely encircles a star to harness its energy. And in 2017, an astronomical event occurred that was unlike any other. For the first time, we observed an object that we are certain originated from beyond our solar system. The cigar-shaped asteroid, Oumuamua, Hawaiian, for messenger from the distant past, came from a region beyond the heliopause, a sample of objects that might exist throughout interstellar space.
1: Ariel, going back to to you, considering, you know, venturing into something that is extremely complicated at such a young age, were there any great uh, scientific personality that you inspired yourself from, in a way or another?
2: Marie Curie, when I was a young girl, I thought I wanted to be a chemist, actually. (laughs) And seeing some amazing figures from history did absolutely inspire her my thought of what was possible as a young person, which I think is really important. But for me, actually, even more than a historical figure, my parents were incredibly influential for me. They're both pilots. My dad was an A-10 fighter pilot, and my mom was one of the first female pilots in the Air Force, period. Uh, She was such a good pilot, she got to teach the men how to fly. And there was a long tradition of, uh, although my parents themselves did not do this, pilots going on to be astronauts and having this sense of courage and service to your country or to your society or hopefully in the future service as global citizens. And so that was also really a key aspect of my childhood that I think led me to think that it's not impossible to think about building space architecture for a future where we're actually going to be scaling humanity's presence in orbit.
1: Alan, in in one of your first books, Einstein's Dreams, um, you put yourself into into Einstein's mind and generate a collage of stories that are dreamed by by Albert Einstein himself, focusing on topics like time, relativity, and physics. How important it is, in your opinion, for the great minds of today to relieve and understand the life of great scientific pioneers, like the one that Luciano and Ariel mentioned before, in order to continue innovating in the space research field?
4: Well, I think that it's important for inspiration. When you study the great historical figures, you see what motivates them. You try to understand their time and place. I also think that learning the history of the subject is important. There's a myth about science that only the current state of knowledge is important. In fact, many scientists in graduate schools do not read the original papers in their field that might be 50 or 100 years old. They just read the most recent papers. And I think that that we're missing out a lot when we don't read and and try to understand the historical progression of ideas that led up to the, the present. It it adds to our understanding of of science as a human enterprise. It's it's not just zeros and ones. They're they're human beings who who make science. And uh, that aspect is very important to me and I think to to, to other people as well.
1: And and talking about history, Luciano, maybe the question is for you. Elon Musk is certainly making headlines. Uh, One of his latest ambition is to put human on Mars. Uh, Do you think he will also make history and become part of this Court of scientific greats or it will just be a sparkle in the middle of, uh, of all these great minds.
3: Elon Musk is definitely making much more than headlines. Uh, he, he is making history because uh, it's already difficult uh, and unusual to find a person that transforms an entire industry, uh, let alone two. So he's about to transform the auto industry and the space industry. So uh, extremely remarkable what what he's doing and he's not done yet so, huge respect one thing about elon musk that i think though it's also worth uh, uh, remembering is that um, he is usually very confrontational with regulators uh, it's mostly my opinion because he's slow him down and uh, it doesn't really work with uh, the philosophy of moving fast and breaking things and we've seen that with um, auto regulators uh, stock market regulators and and with the Federal Aviation Administration. And I think that could be a little bit of a risk when it comes to space, uh, for somebody to be too big to regulate. Uh, Because uh, I do feel that right now we have a very delicate situation when it comes to governance of space. So we all know that the UN Outer Space Treaty is 60 years old and it wasn't really written for commercial uh, space participation. So there's a bit of a gap, and uh, Elon Musk is moving very fast to, to fill this gap. Uh, we, he has a very, very ambitious project with Starlink uh, um, satellites, and I'd be interested in the other panelists' opinion about that. But he, he aims to have 40,000 satellites in low Earth orbit, and I, I see the risk that he's going to crowd out pretty much everyone else from that uh, orbital shell, let's say. So. I think we have to be careful that space should remain uh, common good uh, and open to everyone, as opposed to going into a scenario where we have a domain of the Titans. And that's that's really, I think, the essence of uh, my, my thinking when I think about Musk. It's is a fantastic achievement, but uh, also he needs to be kind of regulated somehow, uh, because he's, he's getting very, very powerful.
1: He definitely is. And Ariel, I would like now to go back to, you know, your, your, your core activities at the MIT. The official vision of the Space Exploration Initiative is quite fascinating, and I would like maybe to, for you to elaborate a bit better on that. Um, it goes, space will be hackable, space will be playful. It's something that is, you know, deserves certainly a few thoughts. Would you mind sharing what that means for you?
2: Sure. So one of the things that we've been trying to do with the MIT lab for the last six years is build the artifacts of our sci-fi space future. So rather than letting these ideas stay in the realm of speculative fiction, or just design even, actually building a prototype. And then what the Space Exploration Initiative has done remarkably well is build a flight opportunities program from zero-g flights, which are affectionately known as the Vomit Comet, these planes that uh, fly parabolas in the sky, to suborbital rockets, to orbital deployments, and now we have our sights set on the Moon, and I actually just signed MIT's first-ever commercial contract to send payload hardware to the surface of the Moon. This Flight Opportunities Program is what allows us to take that vision that space will be hackable, that space will be able to be a domain where we Are creating the realities of our science fiction, vision, and future in this decade, and actually test those concepts, learn and iterate, and begin creating and building the reality of that future. And of course, we are standing on the shoulders of giants here, like Elon Musk and Gwen Shotwell and SpaceX, like NASA and ESA and Blue Origin and Axiom, and kind of a very large space enterprise ecosystem uh, to actually be able to have the privilege of doing this work and testing out our sci-fi space prototypes.
1: Do you think we're already at a point where we don't anymore need humans for space exploration? Is this something that you can elaborate a bit further on?
2: I think the answer for us would be it is a not either or, it's an and. So we absolutely should be sending humans out into space, it is worth the budget, it is worth the commitment uh, from society to protect human biology in this very fragile environment, but that it will be a symbiosis between humans and robots in the future. One of the projects that we're actually proposing to send to the surface of the moon was inspired by Neil Stevenson in Seven Eves, a tiny swarm robot. The idea that in the future, lots of tiny swarm robots are living in symbiosis with spacecraft and able to do diagnostic servicing and testing and um interesting little activities on the outside. And so I think that's a great example of the human is part of what makes it important to go and a uniquely capable being. Still, AI has not yet surpassed us in so that ability to be as uniquely uh, generalizable of an intelligence as the core being that's there as the agent of exploration, but supported by a you know, field of different robotics technologies.
0: Deep-sea explorers often compare themselves to astronauts. It's difficult to find a book of undersea exploration that doesn't include a passing comment about how we know far more about the surface of the moon than the bottom of the ocean. But did you know the man who first popularized the submarine in his famous novel 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea also wrote one of the first stories about visiting the moon? In Jules Verne's 1865 novel, From the Earth to the Moon, he depicts the Baltimore Gun Club using a giant cannon to shoot three people into space. His novel went on to inspire the young Werner von Braun, the rocket scientist who was instrumental in taking the United States to the moon, and is therefore one of the most famous and important examples of science fiction inspiring a real scientific achievement.
1: Alan, the Washington Post has defined you the poet, laureate of science writers. As a now professor of humanities at MIT, um, you must be fascinated by these possible futures for the human race. Do you think it is an inevitable necessity that we will actually end up living in space? Or is it merely something that we can uh, dream of for
4: now? Well, I think it's inevitable, given the human spirit and the human psyche, that Exploration has been part of our DNA for probably a million years, so I, I think that 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 we would be severely restricting ourselves not to go into space. It, it would be putting ourselves in a straitjacket. Well, the practical reasons why we why we should go into space, as Ariel has said, um, there's the the technology, uh, there's finding other habitats to uh, save us from, from the destruction we're doing on our own planet. There's learning about climate change uh, from looking at, at what's happened at, in other planets like, like Venus. But I think that, that there's uh, something deeper than the practical applications. There's a longing to, to explore. Uh, I think exploration is really at the core of our humanity. And uh, space is the next frontier. I mean, there's still other things on planet Earth to explore, but ultimately it's going to be outer space, which is an infinite arena for exploration. So I think it's, it's pretty inevitable.
3: The interesting question for me is is about the timing of when we're going to do it, because I think in terms of the technology development, we'll figure it out. Uh, the technology is... is uh, developing so quickly that uh, if we think 20, 30 years, uh, that we can do amazing things there. The, the real question is, are we ready as a society? Because I think we should colonize the solar system as mankind, not as billionaire X and billionaire Y and uh, country X and country Y. So we really need to get the collaboration uh, uh, going. And, and right now we're having a lot of geopolitical issues, but I think we should colonize when we're ready to colonize as mankind. And I think we, we'll, we'll get there. But that is for me the key on the timing front. Otherwise it becomes just a resource grabbing exercise and uh, it's going to just make inequality here on earth even worse than, than it is. So we can make a, a lot of it.
2: To Luciano's point, I would point your audiences to some of the really interesting policy and governance work that's being done in the space industry right now to try to address this clear gap that we do have between the relatively limited scope of the 1967 Space Treaty and how it's no longer, it's certainly a very good basis, but is no longer really helping us on a day-to-day basis properly guide the behavior of a lot of the stakeholders that are getting active in space, whether it's the 40,000 plus satellite constellation of Elon Musk, or whether it's the the first actors to get to the surface of the moon and begin extracting water ice. And so Open Lunar Foundation is a really interesting organization dedicated to multi-stakeholder coordination and collaboration on the lunar surface. We are at MIT working on a website called LOA, the Lunar Open Architecture, that um, maps all of the stakeholders, all of the planned missions, and some of the geopolitical challenges of these areas of the moon that are concentrated in their resources and will likely drive a lot of actors into the same dense area. And so those are just two examples Open Lunar and the Lunar Open Architecture within the lunar framework because it is. Right now, the shiny new object, no pun intended, that's drawing a lot of the attention of the space industry. But there's wonderful and very urgent and pressing ethics uh, and governance work that needs to be done across a lot of different topics of being proper stewards of the space commons.
4: I think that, that when, we, when we establish new colonies in space, human colonies, the first colonies, that we're going to, in some sense, be exploring not just space but but our own human society, our own human way of being in the world we're, we're going to sort of reset in a way uh, what it means for humans to live together and and i'm thinking of of the book Lord of the Flies uh, in which uh, there were some some people that were cast off on an island after a shipwreck and they reverted to their primitive selves because they were they were in a an environment that they'd never been in before. They were start, sort of starting from scratch. And I think that that when we uh, start building our first colonies, whether they're on the moon, on Mars, maybe using Ariel's superstructures uh, as domes to, to, to keep an atmosphere, that we're going to be, in some ways, resetting human civilization. And we're, we're going to have to relearn what it means for a group of human beings to live together. I, I think that, that we can pass lots of, of, of space laws ahead of time, but we're really not gonna know what it's like to start a, a new human civilization until we do it. And I think we're going to, to be uh, relearning some of the things that, that are needed for, for human beings to, to come together and, and live together. So it's going to be a great opportunity in that regard. It's
1: fascinating really to hear all the three of you agreeing on this very point of how actually human exploration can be also a catalyst for you know, living better together here on Earth. Uh, but maybe it looks to me we are probably a bit more advanced in filling the technological gap or the technology gap uh, in terms of tools that will get us out there. Maybe, Ariel, could you elaborate a bit more on that? What do you think are the technologies that uh, we already have and the ones that we do need uh, to develop to survive as humans in in space?
2: So there are two that we desperately need uh, that come to mind. Luciana has already hinted at one of them, which is propulsion beyond chemical rocket systems. Right now, if we ever wanted to be able to propel human biology beyond the scope of our very near neighborhood of the solar system, we'll need um, propulsion techniques that are faster. The... Second is radiation protection. For a multi-year journey to Mars, right now there's a significant radiation threat posed to humans, so we need better shielding on our spacecraft, something besides just lead. Um, People are talking about things like water walls or special types of nanotubes, and then also maybe a better understanding of how radiation affects the human body, which could be one of these wonderful candidates for some type of a therapeutic solution that might also then be able to be extended to cancer treatment, something that would cross over between radiation-intense contexts in space and radiation-intense contexts on Earth. But those would be my two nominations for anyone listening, things that we should really be working on.
1: Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for your insightful perspective on this extremely fascinating topic. Uh, thank you, Ariel, Alan, and Luciano, for being on this Space Founding Conversation episode. And I hope you enjoyed our talk as much as I did.
4: Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.
0: This episode of Founding Conversation starred Arielek Blau, Alan Lightman, and Luciano Diano, and was presented by Giorgio Cremonesi. This shows a collaboration between PICTE, one of Europe's leading independent wealth and asset managers, and the How to Academy, London's premier public forum for sharing big thinking. Executive producers for this episode were me, Rosario Lebrijares Betayev, Vasily Christodulu, and Niall Moran. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.